0: So last week I opened with a illustration about baseball and I'm going to do it again today. I normally don't do this. So if you're visiting only for two weeks and you're like, man, he likes baseball. I do, but I don't talk about it very often. So let me do this again. Another, another opening here. Uh, I thought about it only because on Tuesday after a group, I got home and the kids had to be put to get put to bed and it took them a while to kind of go down. So after that finally happens I opened up a game I was kind of curious on and just see what was happening there. And it turned out the game, they're going back and forth, back and forth, like the whole game. And I, I tuned it in at the very end. So I'm already seeing kind of like through all the drama and the uncertainty and got to see the team win and stuff like that. But what was catching my attention to made me think about Daniel 8 and this whole discussion on prophecy and a little bit of last week and how that ties in is how the ups and the downs of the, of the game, if I was watching it in real time, I would have been thinking like, oh, uh, oh no! Like, how are they going to get out of this jam? Or what's going to happen here? I don't think they're going to be able to overcome this deficit and all that. But watching it in hindsight, at the very end, when they're you know winning and about to win, it's like, oh, I don't know how they got through that, but they got it. This is great. And it reminded me exactly as we think about Daniel 8 and prophecy and the end times and recognizing that no matter how bad things might get, Jesus is in charge and he's ruling, he's victorious. And so we may in the moment see it hard to think, how will he overcome this? But in the big picture of things, oh, he does, he wins, he's king all that. So I was just reminded of that. And we see that again, we saw that not only last week with a unique passage in Daniel chapter seven, but we see that again today in Daniel eight. So if you are just joining us online or whatever in here, Daniel is kind of split into two different types uh, in its books, so, or its chapters. So the first six chapters are six different stories, and they're fantastic. They're kind of the ones that most people think about if they're familiar with church stories. So you have stories like Daniel in the lion's den, and a bunch of guys thrown in a fiery furnace, and these kinds of stories. And they're amazing. We walked through all of them. If you missed it, listen to that stuff. I learned so much. Well, now we shift into another section of the book and this book is several different visions and prophecies that daniel receives and his prophecies and all that they actually correlate to much of the language and the words that are in revelation as well so we're kind of in the section that when you look at it you're thinking this stuff uh, kind of is the stereotype stereotypical like woo, like a little a little unsure a little strange But there is great principles to be drawn from these passages. And so today in Daniel 8, we have this, a new vision that Daniel receives from the Lord. Last week was a different one. Last week, he had this vision of four different kingdoms. And, and they are actual kingdoms in world history that we see. Well, today's focuses on two of the ones that uh, kingdom number two and three and their functions and their roles in ancient world history. Most of what, what we're reading for Daniel, it happened in the future. For us, it's already happened in, a, in the past, it happened a long time ago, which we'll talk about. And from this, we can see certainties of how God's pro- prophecies not only came true, but they're a reminder for us, and they serve as a uh, sort of a guideline that his other statements, truths, and prophecies will also come true. So if the other ones have in such specific dynamics, we can trust the, the, other, uh, the, the, the ones that have yet to come true. So we're going to just start reading through this. It's a, it's a wonderful, unique portrayal uh, of, uh, of what already occurred for us. But again, for Daniel... It has yet to happen. So he gets this vision, and he's super disturbed by it, right? So let's start working through this, and, and I'll stop as needed. So it starts off this way. In the third year of the reign of the king Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes, and behold, a ram. So this is his vision. A ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. I want to pause it real quick. Here we have this Ram that is portrayed in this vision. It is great. It is powerful. Nothing can stop it. And I'm like, man, if I were ever to use a Bible verse to justify buying a Ram truck, which is my favorite like, brand of choice... I would be using this, like could slide this under, like Lynn's pillow at night. She'd wake up and be like, what's this? Like verse eight, eight, no, chapter eight, verse four, this powerful ram. This is what I need. And with this ram, what we see, this is actually describing a kingdom. It's describing the kingdom of Persia, but we'll talk about that in a moment because uh, it's already in the, in the chapter. It explains itself. Well, let's continue here. Verse five. It starts off this way. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him but he was cast down to the ground and trampled on him, right? So the goat and the ram had this fight, the goat wins. The verse continues there in the middle of seven or at the very end. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. You can remember that portion because we'll get to that in a second. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, so in case you like, kind of like tuned out for a moment, we kind of have a few different characters here. We have a ram that had two horns, and then a goat appeared with one major horn, and it took down the ram. And then the goat with that horn, the horn uh, like breaks away, gets destroyed, and four little ones come up out of that. So, well, what does you know? What does all this mean? We will get to that in a moment. Let's continue here. Verse nine says, "Out of one of them, the uh, out, out of one of those four horns came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host." And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And the host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw to the ground and it will act and prosper. This is, this is disturbing, right? We're going to continue. Daniel, then it says, Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long? Is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Okay, so this is the primary section of the vision with the symbolism here. And I'll talk about it a little bit more in a moment. I want to keep reading because Daniel in a moment has an interaction with an angel who explains what we just read in a lot of detail. But in case you need the bridge between the two, because I know it's a lot of abstract thinking, this last little horn that just wreaked havoc on like the holiness and the holy ones and all that stuff and, 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 and the sanctuary and all that, this is describing this king that rose up and went into Jerusalem and just decimated everything. And so we're gonna talk more about that in a moment, uh, but that, that's, what he's, that's what he is seeing. That's what he's envisioning here. Well, verse 15 says this, "'When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, "'I sought to understand it. "'And behold, there stood before me "'one having the appearance of a man. "'And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, "'and it called, "'Gabriel, make this man understand the vision.'" Gabriel's an angel. This is like, wow, it's actually called out by name. So he came near where I stood. And he came, or when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O Son of Man, that the vision is for the end of the time. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be. At the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Okay, so now he starts to explain a little bit of this vision here. He says, as for the ram that you saw with the two two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn, or, or you could even say the kingdom of Greece, but nonetheless, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Okay, so let's just pause there uh, uh, for a moment here. This is a great example of how Scripture interprets Scripture for itself. So some people, if they only read the first portion of chapter 8, they might springboard and start talking about, like, I don't know, modern countries and stuff. It's like, no, no, that's, that's not even what the vision is. The vision literally has told us told for us by Gabriel, who, you know, he's Gabriel. Let's listen to this angel and see what he's got to say about this. So we know who he's talking about, this kingdom, Media and Persia. They came after Babylon, as we've looked at in the previous weeks, and they were massive. They were the largest ancient Near Eastern kingdom of any other kingdom. And here, Daniel is told about 200 years before Greece conquers them he's told that this is gonna happen. Now, if you were told that 200 years out, you're like, how is that gonna happen? The Persian empire is massive. There's no way this would happen. Well, it did. And Alexander did it in three years. He just took care of business, taking taking out that empire. And here he is, uh, yeah, Alexander the Great. That's partially why his name is what it is. Now, what happens with him is, I'll explain more, but let's read verse 22, uh, because we'll hear what the angel says on this first, and then we'll talk through it. He says, as for the horn that was broken, remember that's Alexander the Great, that horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So Alexander the Great, he unexpectedly dies at age 33 in world history. Like this is stuff you learn about in school this week or whatever, whenever you get to that. And here you have alexander the great he dies but the kingdom doesn't get passed on to like his kid or anything like that instead it gets broken into four different kingdoms now that happens in history they didn't do it because daniel said it was going to happen daniel has this vision that it's going to happen 200 years before or you know whatever about 200 years before this plays out none of these guys were part of alexander's bloodline and none of them matched the strength that alexander had which is exactly what the vision is talking about. Now, if you recall, you're like, okay, well, that's, that explains the goat that hits the ram. You know, he's got this horn, and, but then and the horn breaks, it turns into four horns. But what about that little horn that rises up and starts to just take care of business against God's people? What's going on there? Well, this is a character we know in world history, uh, I'll say in part, and I'll explain the in part a little later. But the angel talks to this a little bit too. So a few verses on this, starting in verse 23, Gabriel says this about that little, that, that, that horn. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors, transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Well, who is this talking about? Well, this is one of those prophecies in which we have a... uh, it's fulfilled in the future, but it's there's an, like an immediate fulfillment and then there's also a greater fulfillment down the road. So let's talk through this a little bit. And this is helpful in understanding scripture, understanding what you're reading. Immediately, what we know is in ancient Greece, after those four kingdoms um, occurred, uh, so let's see, Alexander the Great, he does his stuff around like 330-ish BC, if I recall right. And then around 170 BC. So another 150 years or whatever, six years later, you have a new king within one of those four kingdoms. So those four different kingdoms, you have this one guy rise up, his name's Antiochus IV. So there's other Antiochuses before him. He rises up and he determines, all right, we're going to go try to stop Rome from expanding and stuff. Let me go over to Palestine and we're going to just like set up shop there. And when he does so, he doesn't just work and be present. He actually ends up trying to like take out God's people and it becomes a massive part of Jewish history. And so this man Antiochus the he was so narcissistic that he gave himself this name that means God manifest. And he goes to war against the Jews. They had before this moment enjoyed about 200 years of General peace. They were able to rebuild their city, rebuild their wall, rebuild the temple. This is described in the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah. This is a a big part of what was happening during this time. But then he shows up and he decides, hey, listen, let us abolish ceremonial worship. Let's prohibit the Sabbath. Oh, that's going to go over well. So he began to outlaw basic practices, including circumcision and other ways of life for the Jews. Anyone who defied Antiochus was executed. And then... He decides, hey, let's really take this to another level. Let's go into the most holy place, you know, the sacred place of the Jews, and let us set up a idol dedicated to Zeus. And not just set it up, let's sacrifice pigs on this thing. And so he's doing this, offending all the entire country of the Jews at the time, right? And here they are there. Now, if you were to be familiar with uh, some of the history here, you'll know that the Jews fought against him and had these revolts. And over time, they eventually did like defeat. And then they were able to rededicate their temple. And that's what's called like, that, that's what's celebrated with the festival of Hanukkah. And so this happened, you know, 170 BC-ish, B. about hundred whatever, 70 years before Jesus. And in this time period, all this is occurring. So when the, when Daniel sees this vision of this moment and this like little horn within the Greek empire rising up and doing these things for the Jews, you know, the Maccabean family and others around 170 BC, they're, they're reading this thinking like this is the, in the moment, this is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so like, look what he's doing in the temple. This is totally out of line. So they're looking at it through that lens and in many ways, that makes, uh, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. For us as Christians now, thousands of years later, we also read this with a slightly different uh, shift. I don't, I don't want to say like an addition or a change, but it takes a slightly different form because of something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. Because Matt, or Jesus references this event that's described in the book of Daniel, this the second half of Daniel from this chapter and then definitely in the next couple of chapters the other the other chapters use the phrase the abomination of desolation in this chapter it doesn't say abomination but it does say the transgression that makes desolate and so you have just this general Phrasing of something just desolate and something just awful, something so bad that the other chapters are referring to it as an abomination. What could be so bad? Well, when you have Antiochus doing his thing, yeah, that's pretty bad. We know that this is a, this is a fulfillment of that. However, Jesus, when he references it, he talks about it as if it's gonna happen in the future. And so for us as readers of the word, you can look at this and say, oh, okay, so what Antiochus did was in part a fulfillment of something. And it gave these Jews great hope that they would not always be under this heavy hand. Because if you recall in verse 13, 14, 13 is the one that mentions the sanctuary and there's just desolate and all this stuff. And it says, but this is only going to be for 2300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And so, you know, if you're living 170 B.C. or so, you're, you're, you're aware of what's going down on this and saying, let's press on, let's endure. Uh, it kind of expanded to, like, let's fight back and all this kind of stuff. And they were given back their their temple and, and their um, ability to worship and all that kind of stuff. But we know from Jesus' words that it's beyond that. And there's a correlation, as we looked at last week, as well as the, we'll look at in a moment, to... This being a foretelling of the Antichrist that is to come. So in other words, Antiochus is a type of, or a foreshadowing of, or a character that reminds us of the kind of desolation that the future beast will enact. That kind of decimation, that kind of um, action. All right, so... I don't, what I just said made a lot of sense, but I know that that might not as a listener, because it's just like thrown at you. So let's talk through this a little bit more just to uh, re- really work it out. So let me finish these last two verses here and then we'll talk through. So it finishes this way The vision of the evenings and of the mornings. Uh, that has been told it is true, but seal up that vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. He didn't understand it. He wrote it all down for us. So what does this have to do with us today? Well, we are reminded of this important principle. And that is there's always gonna be bad characters who are out to thwart God's plans and God's purposes and God's people. And we see this resembled with a guy like Antiochus IV. We see this in modern history, like somebody like Hitler. We see this in future history, like the Antichrist. And there are these different people at different moments of time that act against God's work. Now we should find hope in who God is and his plan to orchestrate history and that nothing is gonna overcome what he has. Nothing is greater than God's plan. Nothing's gonna happen and God will say, "Well, oh, I didn't know that guy was doing that or that took me by surprise. That's not how God acts. That's not how he sees with this. And so this prophecy, because it is unexpectedly precise, it should allow us to have great hope that God is allowing things to take place as he understands it needs to. He is sovereign. He knows all things. It's not a guessing game for him. And so all these different events occur within the broader plans of God. But then this passage also for us, because it connects with Jesus' words, allows us to see this connection with the future. And so I want to read for you here from Matthew 24. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. It's As we're reading this, it's almost as if God is telling us this, that if you thought Antiochus, the little horn was bad, well, just wait until you see the final little horn called the beast in the last days. We get this glimpse of what this kind of horn is like because of the work of Antiochus in history and the different, I'll just say the different diabolical characters throughout world history who've tried to stop God's people and God's kingdom, which They can't, but they try. So Matthew 24, it connects, and we'll get to it right in the middle of it. You'll see this here. Matthew 24, starting verse three. It says, later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all of this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers." And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere. And the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all the nations will hear it. And then the end will come. Now Jesus makes this connection back to Daniel, where he says this, the day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration, standing in the holy place. It, and I'm going to read more of this, but it's in this moment that if you're a listener, especially if you were a student of, you know, of Daniel's prophecies here a little bit, you'd say, wait. Wait, there's more. There's another version of this Antioch guy, Antiochus guy. Like I thought that was the big one. I thought that was the fulfillment, and it did appear to be until Jesus said that. And now, in parentheses, in my Bible. So in, in my Bible it says, read or pay attention. Right? It's like, now, wait a second. There's more. Yes, there is more, and this is where it, it connects to this future character who will be the Antichrist. You know, that who is anti-Christ and also takes on this name, the Beast. So Jesus tells them this, then those in Judea, they must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray for your flight. Uh, Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for there will be a great well, my, my, uh, a lot of translations say a great tribulation. Uh, this translation says what? Well, a greater anguish uh, than at any time since the world began. And it will never be so great again. In fact, unless, the time, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. All right. Well, uh, I'm probably the only preacher you're going to hear who's going to like read that at the end of their sermon. Because that's not exactly the most like, all right, go get some lunch. That was a great day. I love this passage. Okay, let's, now this, this definitely requires us to like think through and process a little more. I recognize that it can evoke in any of us some paralyzing anxiety. Maybe even we are a young mother or nursing and you're reading that and you're like, well, that's a real bad time. I don't like this. I don't like this at all, Adam. Tell me something else. And the reality is when we read this, we find ourselves saying, what do we do? Do we head for the hills in light of this? Do we hide in a hole? Do we live on a boat? Like, where do we go? This persecution sounds awful. So let me just talk about it this way. There will always be persecution against the church. It occurred back with Jesus's time and even to today. There's different moments where it is worse than other moments. There are different leaders who are more evil than other evil leaders. But this character known as the Antichrist definitely takes it to 11 when it comes to his persecution and the degree that it will be. We don't know, like, if we will endure this time. Uh, We don't know, like, if this will happen in our lifetime or later. I don't know. But what I do want to remind us of is that what if we have, like, the question I want to pose for you is what if we have our own version, our own generation's version of an Antiochus? So, you know it, most people just jump and say what if we have the beast okay yeah that's true what if but like what if just a, a strong persecuting leader who goes in and wants a clean house and is forcing you to decide will i worship god or not what should our response be if we are living in that kind of era several of our brothers and sisters in christ are living in that sort of era in their countries And they are working through these same questions, but in real time, for us, it's a little more, you know, what happens? How will we respond? Because it's more of a futuristic moment. I mean, it could happen tomorrow, but nonetheless, like, it is not at this exact moment of, uh, to the degree, like in Antiochus. Some of you are like, my boss reminds me of Antiochus. Okay, I get it, like, you don't like your boss or your manager, but it's not necessarily like this. So how are we to respond? Well, I want to give you an exhortation as we wrap up. And this is one that I do think is for our church family. I would even extend it to say and use this language. I think it's, it's with prophetic clarity for our church family on how to respond. If we find ourselves in a time in which there is an Antiochus-like character or maybe even the big one, the Antichrist, No, like wherever we are in that spectrum of things. How should we respond? I have a word I want to share with you, but let me give a quick context or caveat to say this. I've listened to a lot of different people talk on this. This is the kind of topic that gets a lot of listeners on the podcast. This is the kind of topic that sells a lot of books. And most of the people I'm reading, they're not saying what I want to share with us. So I recognize that, that, some people take it a different route, but pastorally, not on a, not with political commentary, not with here's the precious metals you gotta save, or here's how many pounds of spaghetti you gotta save, or whatever it is. Not that. Instead, I do think the Lord gives us with great clarity how we are to respond. respond in light of the persecution of a satanic-like figure. And it's in Matthew 22. And these passages you can take to the bank every day. This could be preached to us today. It could be preached to other Christians around the world right now who are enduring this. This could be preached back to the Jews who were enduring this stuff with Antiochus. This can be shared one day with those who are literally underneath the rule of the Antichrist. And it's Matthew 22, 37, 8, and 9. Jesus says this, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest compa- commandment. This, a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No matter how bad it gets, whether it's just, no matter how bad it gets, our command. To love God and to love others does not change. Our command to love God and love others doesn't change no matter how bad it gets. Now I know it's enjoyable, or, or uh, I've had many conversations, particularly the last couple of years, about how to prepare for something that you might be reading about in Matthew twenty-four. Not just what I read, but if you were to keep reading, Jesus gets into more details, that parallel revelation as well. And I know it's easy to want to think through some of that, but let me just tell us to to, uh, be careful to go down different things that end up compromising our much needed commitment to love God first and, and love others. Because what can happen is you can end up having Uh, I don't know. I'm just going to go with something and try not to get too stuck down this route. But you could have a whole storehouse of things that allow you to defend against zombies or something. But you might not be loving God and loving others. And our commandment is to love God and love others, not whatever some podcaster thinks is like, you know, whatever he's telling you. And so with that said, Uh, I want to challenge us. I want to exhort us as a church family to walk in a way that fully exudes a love for God and others. The other ways that this can play out and different things that might be a passion of yours or something the Lord convicts you on, you know, to the degree you want to do that, whatever. Just do not compromise when it comes to loving God and loving others. And so as the band comes up here and gets ready to lead us in this last song, I want to challenge us to make a commitment to God that says, listen, no matter how bad it gets, And uh, whatever it may be, I want to have a commitment, a resolve to love God, love God Almighty, love our Savior, and also love others. And so on your seats, you have all these different three by five cards. Most seats, some seats have them, some seats don't. If you have them, you can use it. It may have some scrap paper near you. And we also have some different cards at the prayer request table and up here at the cross too, if needed. If you'd like to, I want to encourage you to write down kind of a personal acknowledgement to God of your commitment to Him and to others. And and this might be something that you need to do later this week because the reality is some of us are so steeped in a survival world and I don't know, like you're living in a Hollywood movie that you, that you can forget, you're surrounded by real people, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family, who need to know the love of Christ. They need to be shown the love of Christ. You have your own private time that you need to dig far more into God's word, fill your mind and your heart with God's word, and not just with like the news of the day or the, um, the recommendation of the day for how to respond. And I can get into more details privately if you're curious on that stuff, but I want to encourage all of us to make a personal commitment says god it, it doesn 't really yeah whatever gets thrown our way here 's what I want to commit to you that I will love you and I will love others well, even if we encounter an experience similar to what matthew twenty five describes again, whether it is just a foreshadowing of what's to come or whether it's literally like the the big one that people um, are wondering about. So with that said, let's pray. And then-